Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello and welcome back to the New Books in Indian Religions podcast, a podcast channel here on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Dr. Raj Balkar, and more importantly, today I have the pleasure and the honor of speaking with Dr. Greg Bailey. He's a former reader in Sanskrit and is an honorary research fellow in the School of Languages and Cultures at La Trobe University in Melbourne, Australia. Um, He is a very well-known, established, seasoned scholar in the field of Purana studies, we can say, and we'll be speaking about um, a brand new translation of a probably lesser known text that is fascinating about uh, the Hindu god Ganesha. Um, Greg, welcome to the podcast. Thanks very much, Raj. Glad to be here. Yeah, delighted to have you back. Um, so the text that you have translated for the benefit of it, the English-speaking world is called the Vinayaka Mahatmya. Could you tell us a bit about how you became interested in this text or decided to translate it or how you came across it? What's, what's the backstory of this text? Okay. I spent 20 years translating the Ganesha Purana. <clears throat> no one had translated any Puranic texts about Ganesha. And I discovered I was working in the, the library of the École Française de Stemoyon in 1979 and um, found there was a manuscript of this particular text. Anyway, to cut a long story short, in the second um, kanda of the Ganesha Purana, it refers to the Linga Purana and it also refers to the Vinayaka Mahatmya. And I wondered what this Vinayaka Mahatmya text was. In fact, if it was a real text or something else. So <clears throat> over the years, traveling to India and looking at manuscript collections and catalogues, I discovered, yes, there was a text called the Vinayaka Mahatmya. And so I wondered what this particular text would be would be like. As we know, Vinayaka is the other very common name of Ganesha. So about 10 or 12 years ago, I managed to acquire some manuscripts of it and also discovered that Niranayana Sagar, the very big um, publisher of Sanskrit texts in Mumbai and Pune, had produced an edition in 1930. So I was able to get a Xerox copy of that. And on that basis, I started reading the text And I had a Sanskrit reading group with students after I retired from La Trobe. So we read a fair bit of the text in that reading group. The Sanskrit's not especially difficult, though in parts of it are. But on that basis, I reworked it and reworked it and wrote an introduction and tried to contextualise it within the other literature of Ganesha. There is another huge Purana, the Mudgala Purana, which is gigantic, as long, long as the Mahabharata. And I don't, it's, it's quite difficult in parts, and I don't know if anyone will translate that. It deserves to be translated, but whether it'll be done is a different question. Well, uh, perhaps that's <laughs> one of the many future projects uh, that you could consider. Um, so uh, just uh, let's stay at the 30,000-foot view level for now. Um, uh, so... Vinayaka Mahatmya. Vinayaka, certainly significant, perhaps one could infer it's significant that the text identifies as the Vinayaka Mahatmya. Um, why is it this particular epithet, do you think? That's yes, used? I don't know. That is an interesting question, Raj. I don't know. And the Ganesha doesn't occur that much in the text. Maybe it's because, uh, perhaps it's because there was an attempt to try and distinguish this aspect of Ganesha from his function of Lord of the Gunners. By the time this text composed was composed, whenever it was, perhaps 13th, 14th century, Ganesha had become an extremely popular deity in the Hindu, Hindu pantheon. But I think that, um, I just think that it may be an, an effort to try and distinguish different aspects of Ganesha from what we find in the in the Mahapuranas, the large Puranas, mostly Ganesha, the story of Ganesha is about his beheading when he's a boy, protecting poverty, and the head being replaced by the head of an elephant. Um, and 
I think by that time, by, by, by the t- time when specific texts about Ganesha begin to be published or produced, I should say, the, he's become a very prominent god. There's over a hundred names of hundred. There's a thousand Sahasranama Stotra, a thousand names, him of Ganesha in the in in the Ganesha Purana, but Vinayaka, which we might take as leader or something like that, uh, is very common in the Ganesha Purana as well. And I suspect that whoever composed this text wanted to try and bring out this particular aspect of Ganesha, because we're dealing with a text which dealing with Ganesha's avatars. So that's not a very good response, but it's a good question, and I think it needs yeah. to be studied. No, it's a it's a it's an excellent response insofar as that it's it is uh, evidencing a thought process, and it's uh, one that necessitates conjecture, and um, it may or may not be known among a more general audience. But um, uh, studying the Puranas requires a great deal of conjecture and deduction, and they're not yeah. things aren't laid out in a clear cut fashion. Um, and so say a word about this, this entity called Mahatmya, uh, perhaps the meaning in the, 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 the Mahatmya genre. Sure. Mahatmya genre is a, a, is a genre that's, that's really very similar to the Puranic genre. It means glorification or greatness. It comes from, it's, it comes from the word Mahatman, which is difficult to translate into English. It can mean great self or great, just great. It can often just mean great without the Atman being translated. But the sense of the Mahatmya as a, a, um, a genre, its own genre, is that it attempts to try and focus in on a particular aspect of a deity or of a place of worship, because many Mahatmya is associated with places of worship, or of a particular geographical area and in doing so it collects myths and narratives that relate to that particular geographical area or to a particular aspect of a deity or a particular mode of worship i mean there are as you're aware there are hundreds of mahatmyas uh, uh, lying around in manuscript libraries in india most of which have not been studied or translated, and most of which tend to be connected to the Skanda Purana, which, have, which is a gigantic text, six or seven volumes in, in um, Sanskrit editions and about 10 in the, tra- in the Matalal translation. Um, but the Mahatmya does allow specialisation in one particular area, dealing with one particular topic, and enables the narratives associated with the speciality of the deity or the place, in fact, to be brought together. It's the Sanskrit of the Mahatmya is not particularly difficult. It's usually relatively straightforward, even though most of them, I suspect, were probably recited to a popular audience in a vernacular language. But nonetheless, the fact that it's in Sanskrit still gives it the status of the central of the larger tradition, whilst enabling a range of texts, some of them which are quite humorous, to be brought together to illustrate a particular aspect of a deity or a sacred place. Mm. Typically, I mean, listeners probably know that uh, one of my areas of specialty is the Devi Mahatmian, and, yes. uh, um, and uh, 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 you were kind enough to write a, a generous uh, forward for the Devi Mahatmya, but there's, I always translate it just instinctively now as greatness of the goddess, but I mean, really, yep. I mean, it could be, it could be glorification, magnanimity. The, the, or narrative of the, yeah, sure. So, narrative so, of the glorification of a goddess because of, they are narratives, mm, theological mm. narratives in many respects. And so these narratives of Vinayaka in this Mahatmya what are some of the contours or some of the, um, the what's, note, what's noteworthy about what this text is doing? What it does, it, 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 it bounces off the second book of the Ganesha Purana, which partly deals with Ganesha's avatars, but it introduces a few other new ones at the same time. Uh, and um, the tale of Chintamani, for example, the first four or five chapters is um, a new um, and not found in the from memory, not found in the Ganesha Purana, 
it's a while since I've read the Ganesha. The important point is that we find the word avatara being used continually in this particular text where you don't find it being used in the Ganesha Purana. And I haven't checked the Mudgala to see, nor do you find it in the um, the birth story of Ganesha in the Brahma Vaivarta Purana, which I translated for Matala, which came out last year. Uh, so the I'm just looking at the table, the contents now. There's 24 chapters or ajayas. And it's not so, focusing so much on the birth of Ganesha, though that 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 does come come into play. Uh, it focuses much more on the on on his descent, his in 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 into the unto the earth in order in order to rectify Dharma in the sense that Krishna does or Devi does in the Devi Mahatmya. It's a class. It's an attempt to try and place him. Within this, within this particular framework, we've got to bear in mind that Ganesha, above all, is the creator and destroyer of obstacles, and the notion of of the descent is is fact is uh, or the notion of the avatar is one expression of this destruction of obstacles to a better world. On the other hand, we have to bear in mind that the idea of Ganesha's upbringing, his conflict with Shiva and his closeness to poverty is also in the background of this particular text. And you see it in some side stories, various side stories about um, a, a woman and a, a man who've got, got out into the bush and so forth and had kids and um, then there's, there's all sorts of problems associated with that the we also have the um, the the um, the development of Ganesha's uh, vahana, his vehicle, and so forth. Although it's really about dealing with the, with the peacock. Rather, Ganesha rides on a mouse, the mushika, and it's really about that that the the um, classical the Ganesha Purana deals. But as you say, the main context really is the setting up of an environment where uh, the normal order of the, of the earth, dharma, that untranslatable term dharma, has been overthrown or has been threatened to be overthrown. And then um, Ganesha, Vinayaka, is required to ascend. And the, um, he's also called Gajanan, he who has the face of an elephant in the text. He's required to descend in order to... Uh, rectify this particular situation. And there's always a conflict, there's always a battle, which, of course, he always wins, and there's boon givings taking place and so forth. And so it's placing Vin um, Vinayaka or Ganesha within the same kind of framework as the goddess and of Vishnu and to a lesser extent of Shiva. That's what I think the intention, intentionality of it is, because initially, if we can talk about Hinduism developing in the early historical period, say 200 BCE onwards, Ganesha is hardly ever mentioned at all. It's later on that he becomes an important, several hundred years later, does he become an important deity. And I think by the say the 1200 or something like that, whenever this, it's impossible to date these texts, as you know. Um, and the earliest manuscripts are usually about 1700. By that particular time, it's clear that there was an, an effort by Ganesha worshippers, because there are hundreds of Ganesha temples by then, almost institutionalised, to present the deity as a multifaceted deity who could who perform the same kind of functions as Vishnu and Shiva, and there are places in this particular text in the Ganesha Purana where it declares Ganesha is the same as the Nuta Brahman, and that he creates through Brahma, protects through Vishnu, and destroys through Shiva, as we get in the Devi Mahatmya as well. Perhaps, um, and this is conjecture, of course, even with the Devi Mahatmya, perhaps, but perhaps it's not dissimilar insofar as. There may well have been uh, an, an ancient um, 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 following 
of uh, Durga or Ganesha in this case that was eventually um, assimilated into the Sanskritic fold. Perhaps the worship of Ganesha long predates. People have we speculated. See. People have speculated about that, but it, as you say, it remains pure conjecture, and we really mm. haven't got. <clears throat> there's the odd mention of Ganas and so forth. Gana, Ganesha, Lord of the Ganas. The Ganas were the, the group of young demigods who accompanied Shiva at various places. There's Ganas that are mentioned in the Mahabharata. Uh, there's the famous episode of Ganesha of Ganesha's um, task being used to write the Mahabharata, but that's supposed to be much later. Um, we don't find him. We do find the word Vinayaka being used in early Buddhist texts, in Pali texts, but it doesn't refer to Ganesha. So somehow or other, this particular deity, when, Shiva, when the mythology of Shiva and Parvati become very important, not just of Shiva, but Shiva and Parvati together, in the sense of, of, of defining how a Hindu marriage should, should function and the correct relationship between husband and wife, and child, and child. It's then that Ganesha becomes important because his head's chopped off by his father, and that has to be explained. And the idea of a god with an elephant head and a human body is also difficult, and it's never really resolved in the Ganesha Purana, even though it's referred to, and you get stories there of boys having their heads chopped off and replaced by something else. And it's it exists behind the scenes in the Vinayaka Mahatmya as well, the same kind of theme, the same kind of concern about the um, beheading of the child and um, of the um, replacement with the elephant head. As I say, for, that's a real problem It's for the text. They did try and deal with it. Rather than just accepting it, they did try and deal with it. We what about this? Um, certainly, this was an organic process of translating this text that occurred uh, in stints over a number of years. But was there anything in particular that surprised you about um, the text? Not really. No. It it um, it um, it was essentially uh, containing much of the material, or in, inspired inspired by the. Uh, the what you find in the in the Ganesha in the Ganesha Purana, uh, there is less material um, in it about the the cutting off of the head and so forth. It that seems to have been been accepted by the time this text was composed. And but what I think is the interesting thing about it, primarily, is the fact that Ganesha has been put up as the avatar. That's that's what. That's what's interesting, but a lot of the some of the rest of it occurs is taken straight from the Ganesha Purana, and perhaps and occurs also in the in the Mudgala Purana. Um, so uh, that's that's what in fact is really interesting, and the fact that a boy like Ganesha, he's still basically a, a young, he's never depicted as being elderly or anything like that. He's always young. Is capable of, of of performing these particular kind of functions that the avatar performs. The idea of dharma, I think, is less prominent in this particular text than it is in in the in the Mahabharata, for example, where Krishna is the avatar, and in the Hari Vamsha, uh, because the Puranas are devotional text essentially. They're theological and devotional text. And I think that the the um, the more subtle aspects of Dharma, and Dharma is a, a difficult concept, as we know, tend to be um, left aside. That's probably the best way to put it in this particular kind of context. So I think the big surprise for me was the fact that here we have a text which is summarizing many of Ganesha's avatars in a way that allows... Uh, um, allows perhaps a recitation or a reading. I think I think that they could the um Tamil translation, there's a Vinayaka Puranam in Tamil, I think is based on this. I haven't looked at it closely. The, um 
it allows a concentrated read of Ganesha's mythology at a time when Ganesha has become a very mature deity and no longer under the um, sway of Shiva and Parvati, even though they have to be represented because the, the birth myth is still fundamental. But Ganesha has moved far beyond that by that particular time. Um, regarding your observation that um, the text doesn't contain um, much discourse on Dharma, would you say that it, that it um, sets aside that discourse? Would you say that it internalizes it or evidences it in other ways? I think it probably sets it aside, really. Um, there are places where they're... It's much more crudely developed and so forth, where some kind of demonic figure will come and stop the Brahmins from performing um, rituals and getting rid of the Vedas and that kind of thing, which you get in the Mahabharata and so forth as well. But I think it sets it, it, sets it aside because I think that as the composers of a text like this may well have assumed that those kind of those the kind of arguments about Dharma were already well known to an audience because of the of the transmission of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana to the two most popular texts in India, even in the present day, and which had long been known in vernacular forms. So they were accessible to a wide audience. So I suspect that the kind of arguments about Dharma, particularly in the Mahabharata, where they become extremely um, rarefied and scholastic were completely unnecessary for a popular audience who simply would not have been interested in them. And a text like this is a text for a, a popular audience. They're almost like soap operas in a way. And you could, you, could, you could easily see how this could be adapted for a television series over, say, 25 nights or something like that, because the same kind of themes keep coming out, coming out, and coming out, whereas the Mahabharata in particular, more so than the Ramayana, the, um, raises all sorts of questions, deliberately so, because one of the functions of the Mahabharata is to undercut the basic thesis that it is pushing. Mm. So I don't know if that's helpful. But, um, we're spec oh, I'm speculating a lot here. Uh, uh, the, the questions, uh, the prompts that, that are issued uh, on this podcast are always meant to be generative. So no, it's great. It's great. Um, a number of thoughts come to mind. Um, I'm trying to uh, decide how nerdy to get uh, in the field of piranha studies. Um, this, uh, so you were actually my external um, examiner from my PhD thesis, I think that was in yep. 2015. And one of the things you pointed out it, that was worth mm. consideration was um, what you viewed as the, the avatar uh, function writ large in the Devi Mahatmya. Um, and I think that's certainly um, worth consideration. What I, what I equally find fascinating about this text, the Vinayaka Mahatmya, is that unlike the Devi Mahatmya, it's so overt about the avataric function and 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 and, and it, it, how do you make sense? Uh, how can one make sense of the notion that that the function of the avatara is considered primarily a Vaishnava or a theological mm -hmm. development? I'm not so sure. I, 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 I take the point, but I'm not so sure that it is. I think that Shiva please, please has avatars. More. I think Shiva has avatars in certain texts, and I think that a number of contemporary swamis have claimed they are avatars of Shiva, mm. but I agree with you. It does seem to be an essentially a Vaishnava notion because within the Trimurti concept of creation, preservation, and destruction, the preservation has to be mm. the preservation of a, of, a, of, of a world ordered with a particular cultural view. If we define Dharma as culture, it has to be ordered. And so in that sense, with, this, with the systematization of these cosmological functions, cosmogonic and cosmological functions in the Trimurti, then one would expect um, it to be a, a Vaishnava concept. Although Brahma, of course, the creator god, he creates Dharma. 
And he works, he and Vishnu work in conjunction with each other to ensure that Dharma remains as the guiding ethos for the three worlds. Um, I think that the because Krishna, the worship of Krishna was so prominent um, in the early part of the, of, the, of the first millennium of the common era, it becomes very, very com prominent indeed that the idea of the avatara, the theme of the avatara, in conjunction with its background of dharma, becomes fundamental for the development of any kind of prominent deity, hence the, the goddess, who in fact is becoming extremely important, um, has, to be regard, has to be placed within that kind of framework. And much later, much later, Ganesha is placed within it as well. I mean, the Devi Mahatmya is certainly earlier than the Vinayaka Mahatmya. But I, I mean, I haven't studied the Shiva avatars at all. I'm not sure who has it. Wendy Doniger did. I don't. I can't remember. It's a long time since I've read an excellent book on Shiva. But um, I think that the important point is that yes, it begins as a Vaishnava concept, but then it becomes it becomes a more universalized concept, which any deity that is to be regarded as a supreme deity amongst many other deities, a supreme deity amongst its worshippers, its worshippers must have some anchorage within the avatara concept. That's how I would, would argue. Hmm. Fascinating. In what ways, if any, uh, does the Vinayaka Mahatmya um, tie itself to or connect to the broader Puranic corpus? Well, it places itself within the Skanda Purana. That's one particular um, thing. And the trouble is the Skanda Purana is a catch-all for everything. Because, as you know, so many Mahatmyas, in fact, occur in the Skanda, are attached to the Skanda Purana. And I did check up the Skanda Purana and couldn't find a Vinayaka Mahatmya in it at all. At all. But I think that the production of Puranas became open-ended at a particular time. Yes, the, the, the Mahapurana, of which the Skanda is one, many of them became closed canons, as it were, although there are variations in many of the manuscripts traditions. But I think that the um, for some reason, it's, it would, would have been interesting to see it tied into the Ganesha Purana or the Mudgala Purana, except that the Ganesha Purana is accessible. It's only about 230-odd oh, adhyayas, something like that. The Mudgala Purana is quite inaccessible, and the Ganesha Purana exists in Hindi and Marathi translations and Tamil, Tamil reworkings as well. The Mudgala does not. Uh, but I think that your point that you made earlier about the, the projection of the name Vinayaka may have prevented it being placed in conjunction with um, the Ganesha Purana. And I, I, by putting it within the Skanda Purana, it both uh, it places it within the larger framework of the Maha Puranas, whilst at the same time giving it a sense of independence. So I think that that's how we might, in fact, understand that. What might be uh, uh, your favourite or one of your favourite narratives, your favourite stories within the Purana? Uh, I should a, say. Yes, it's a while since I've read it. I think that the, um, I think that the, the um, I'd have to go through it again to, I'm getting old and my memory is going, but um, the, the, the story of the, of the the Chintamani stone from Kapila and so forth, I think, is, is is highly significant. That doesn't really occur. That's that's much more in other texts. It's quite it, it constitutes quite a large part. The killing of Sindhura, which occurs in the Ganesha Purana as well, all of these, in fact, 
are significant. And there are other ones, the more personal ones, the narration of, of chapter 20s and onwards, the narration of Sumada and Madhava, two people who are forced into the fire push and have a child, and then Ganesha comes along, Vinayaka comes along and helps them, helps them um, out of their problems and so forth. All of the, these are uh, almost personalised the text, and I think think that's that's um, that I think is is highly significant that that um, that the text is so personalised in certain parts. Not all of it; a lot of it is dealing with the with the three worlds, but much of it is dealing with individual characters. Um, Swamis, sages, of course, rishis, and so forth, but also the odd king and the queen, and people who who tend to be nonconformists and so forth. And I think that that's quite significant in a text like this, where it occurs less so in the Ganesha Purana, which is still placed very much within the framework of of the of the Shiva Puranas, of the large scale Shaivite Puranas dealing with Ganesha's birth and beheading. You know, one thought that occurred to me earlier when you were talking about the popularizability, if that's a word, of these narratives, the, the serializability, the extent to which this could be a, a, a soap opera. I think um, a phenomenon that evidences that in modern times is the very popular Amarchita Kata, where these tales are just so, um, they're, they're, they're candy. They're candy to public audience when packaged properly in a, in, in, in a language folks can understand, etc. And I think they may have always functioned in a similar manner in different media throughout the ages. Yes, I don't know if if there, if 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 such comics exist about Ganesha. I mean, there are versions of the Mahabharata and the Ramayana in that particular form. But do you know of any Puranas that have been put into that particular form? Do you mean in modern times? Yeah, in that comic no. form. Yes, there are there are stories of uh, there are stories of the Devi Mahatmya, the stories of the Markani Purana. Yeah, there there are a number of chronic narratives that um, contribute to uh, the Amarchitakata series. Uh, But it, it, you know, whether it's the comic medium or whether it's um, stage or whether it's, you know, a variety of artistic media, it's just these narratives are um, sort of crafted for uh, public consumption, it seems, Uh, much more so than many of the debates of the Mahabharata, as you mentioned. Yes, they... The, the 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 point about about that that kind of genre is is that it allows um, the text the classical texts to be reconfigured in terms of the values of contemporary society. Again, it's like Western soap operas or reality television. Reality television is basically rubbish, except that it develops. It contains important mythological elements. And it interests me insofar as it reflects neoliberal values, and neoliberalism has been a disaster for the world. Um, and I think that reality television, in particular, inculcates these kind of individualistic, atomistic values in people. And the the point about the Puranic narrative is that it can really be, and and the Mahabharata narrative, apart from the than from the didactic portions of the Mahabharata, the these texts are really accessible at all sorts of different times. They're not frozen in ice, as it were. And I think that the the kind of family tensions that are still expressed in the Vinayaka Mahatmya, less so than in the Ganesha Purana, are still relevant in an Indic context at the present time. And so it would be, it would be, um, and the same with the Devi Mahatmya, because the Devi is so important in all sorts of forms throughout India and has been for the last 2,000 years, if the truth be known. These um, texts can easily, easily have a resonance in a popular audience that has no interest in the, in Dharma Shastra or the, 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 the um, questioning of the validity of dharma as an abstract set of concepts defining culture. Mm. 
Yeah, just fascinating um, corollary in uh, some of my other work. I've uh, aside from the couple of academic books, I, I have a, a popular book out called "The Stories Behind the Poses," and so it's narrating vignettes from you know the Puranas, the epics, in such a way that um, folks enjoy them either as stories, but many an astute uh, yoga teacher or um, uh, you know, Indology aficionado will reach out and, and, and make connections between the narratives and the philosophy and the narratives and the theology will make overt connections. And I think in many ways, narrative does the heavy lifting of theology and philosophy, but in an accessible way. And I really like the, and value the point you make about, um, you know, the text is on the tongue, the piranhas aren't, uh, the, the genre is not frozen. It's, it's meant to be uh, recapitulated and embellished and, and sort of, um, um, rendered for for different audiences at different times. I think that's part of the, the nature of the genre. I think that what you say just then inspires me to think that looking at the, th the three or four main texts dealing with Ganesha in Sanskrit, the Mudgala Purana represents the heavy, heavy philosophical um, um, grounding of this particular deity. As I say, it's extremely long, and there's a lot of very difficult Sanskrit in it. I've only read bits and pieces that, of it that, that related to the Ganesha Purana. And that really is, um, it has been edited by Niranaya Sagar, but it, it's, it's beyond the capacity of most Ganesha devotees to be concerned. The Ganesha Purana is much more accessible because it's essentially about myth. Yes, it does contain some material about performance of puja, this kind of thing, as Puranas do, as they're required to do because they're devotional texts. And then, so that's a sort of a, a middle concession, if you like. And the Ganesha Purana has been recited. I've known, I've known examples of it being recited even in the present day. And the, we get down to the Vinayaka, which is much more like the soap opera, much more accessible because it doesn't deal with performance of puja. It simply deals with the narrative and, and um, develops the values, the underlying values, which come out um, with um, in an extremely clear way, in an extremely clear way. That's, I think that's, so there's, there's developments here. And the same with, with, with Vishnu and Shiva, and so forth, and the and the the Devi, the um, the various Devi Puranas as well, have a lot of philosophical content in them, as you well know. Um, whereas the Devi Mahatmya gets straight to the point, straight to the point, and relates Devi to the um, to the three great gods, Brahma, Vishnu, and Shiva. But the the Devi Purana. Um, and what's the other big? What's the other big one? Um, Devi Bhagavata Purana. Devi Bhagavata are much more have a more philosophical material in them. Yeah, it, 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 this is a this fascinates me. It's in many ways I see the Devi Mahatmya as encoding a great deal of um, theological content. It's not just a, a, a feminine face of the divine. It's encoding a very different um, mo. Um, yes. a, a power structure, a very different uh, theology, but it's doing so in narrative form where it's internalized by the myth makers, uh, by whomever the rishis, the authors, the myth makers. It's internalized. And I think that is very much consciously or unconsciously at the heart of popularizing these narratives. It's yes. disseminating very dense information. And we could do this whether we analyze, you know, Star Wars or Lord of the Rings or, or what have you mm. in the modern world. It's 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 rendering very dense information in symbolic um, sort of sound bites for people. Yes. Um, so. Yes, it has to make them. It makes this this theological material accessible, as you say. It brings them into sound bites. I like that. And um, uh, it, I mean, Star Wars essentially is about cops and robbers, like most American. Um, films are i mean I, <laughs> and i quite like the first three first three star wars movies i thought were excellent i haven't seen the other ones um it's not on the same level as lord of the rings which is much more sophisticated uh, but, of course but um nonetheless the same kind of the th themes in fact are still there 
the conflict between the 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 family relationship between Luke Skywalker, Darth Vader, and his mother and so forth, who he didn't know, and his sister and so forth, come out have developed underlying themes which 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 develop, and the same in these Puranic narratives. And when you have a text like the Vinayaka Mahatmya or the other Mahatmyas, then you can develop these themes in a way because they're concentrated. Whereas in the larger, much larger texts, the themes are much more diffuse. The narratives are more diffuse, I should say, and it makes it difficult to develop um, for an audience, for a popular audience, I think, to get the sense um, of what the underlying theology is, even in relation to the much more magical, if you like, or um, illustrious presentation of action. Because what the Vinayaka Mahatmya does is present action in, in, in many ways. And uh, I think that that's, that's quite a fundamental aspect, aspect of the text. Could you say a quick word about your, your actual process uh, translating from the Sanskrit to the English? What's that like for you? Um, hard going. No, I've been doing Sanskrit, I don't know, for 40 odd years or longer or something like that, and it's still hard going. And I tend to translate too literally. Some people have different techniques. What I do, I go through the text, do an initial rough translation. The difficult parts I tend to um, leave aside. Then I'll go back again and do a more careful translation and if if a particular part of the text has been is found in another text that's been translated i'll look at the other translation if there's a translation in another european language which i know um and there hasn't been in the case of of, of the of these ganesha texts i will always check that that translation whether it's in german or french but the process is to try and bring out what the what the Sanskrit, which is very abbreviated as you as you rightly know, because it's so highly inflected and the syntax can be quite difficult, to try and bring that out into into readable English, of course, that is transparent to the original, but also you have to translate style. And I think a running flowing narrative, as the Puranas are, also sometimes they stop in the middle, of course, and take up a new subject. But I think you're not just translating the words, you're translating the narrative style because the communication occurs through both the words and the particular style. I mean, the Puranic genre is totally different from Dharma Shastra where they're just listing rules and ritual texts and so forth, again, where they're dealing with rules. So I would go through a translation. I would go at least through four or five times. And then hopefully uh, it's it's always advisable, if you can, to get someone else to read it. And I went through it through parts of the text with this Sanskrit reading group that I have. And that's helpful because they have different opinions on on the um, on a particular verses and so forth. But so you st I start off slowly going through the entire text and you need to have an understanding of the entire text before you can understand the bits and pieces of it. Mm, exactly. You have to work out the intention of the composers of the text. Then you go back and forth, back and forth, and looking at concentrations and repetitions and so forth. And even then, there are parts in this text which I don't think I which I understood some of the stuff dealing with tantric stuff I just didn't understand and recitation of prayers and so forth, mantras and so forth that that I ended up having to take a guess at. And that's the case with the translation from, from classical languages, and particularly from Sanskrit. Fascinating. Well, listen, Greg, anytime you want some insight on mantra or tantra from an emic perspective, I'll draw on some, 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 okay. um, some lineal training and, and help you out. But um, all jokes aside, this, um, 
it's it's so fascinating hearing your process. So you know, I've uh, I turned out a new translation of the uh, Devi Mahatmya uh, the better part of a year ago, probably uh, timeless time. I have no idea. At least six months ago, and I'm now finally making the time to go back and tweak it and get it off my desk. And what I need to do is write an introduction. And one of the things I want to stress at the very outset is this, you know, uh, somewhat hyperbolic, but perhaps apt expression that there is no translating from English to Sanskrit. It's always rendering. So I think there is no, very rarely can you directly translate. There's so many variables uh, with any language, even a modern, uh, a modern English or French, their their nuances that'll never be conveyed. But Sanskrit to English, it's like you have to render. Like you will read yes. top five translations of the Bhagavad Gita. I currently do a Bhagavad Gita study group every Wednesday night for some of my school um, audience, and um, we're, we can't decide on a translation to use because it'll be fine. And then every once in a while, they'll throw in a word that's like that's clearly laden like piety, or or, or, or yeah. they'll throw in a, a word that'll uh, you know sin, and it's like you can't quite. Um, so, so for me, I had to get my my analytical brain out of the way because I've studied the Devi Mahatmya for a number of years, and it's you know much of it's been internalized, and I just had to let it flow. And now I'm going back to just double check, and I'm in this particular case, we have a very faithful, rigorous, sometimes a tad literal, but we have a very faithful translation by Coburn thirty years ago, which yeah, exists, yeah. and so yeah. I'm. It, yeah. Yeah, I'm erring on the side of a more fluid, I mean, ganam banam, just to my mind, deep, dark forest. I mean, I don't know, it's dark in there, it's deep in there, but deep, dark forest, ganam banam, or mm-hmm. trying to translate namaste say, namaste say, namaste say, namo namaha, what do I do? Uh, obeisance, 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 we now bow down. Trying to translate some of the mm-hmm. um, the um, um, texture. And it's it's it really is... Um, there. <laughs> you have to sacrifice something every time you're rendering something into yes, English or Sanskrit yes. something has to be sacrificed no matter how you slice it um so thank you for sharing on your process one one final question for today I know I know we're close to time um uh, what are you working on now next what's what's next for you oh uh, I've been working on a project that um I've been on on and off for 15 years and it's driving me insane arguing that the Mahabharata <laughs> was partly composed because of the material success of early Buddhism. The Buddhists were very good fundraisers, and also they were um, helped, they raised, they went with monasteries and stupas that they were embedded within local villages and urban areas, and they brought money into the area. And Julia Shaw, an archaeologist at London who's worked at Sanchi, has, argued, has shown how much they're associated with dam building. And so what I'm trying to argue is that the Mahabharata, the, which is a, a text of Brahmins primarily in my view, uh, somehow or other reflects a deep concern that the Brahmins had with uh, the extent to which the Buddhists Apart from Buddhist teachings, the Buddhists were able to command, commandeer so much financial support from all sorts of areas of society and manifest this in structures, large-scale structures and so forth. And so that, on the one hand, the Brahmins are concerned about this and compose this huge narrative. The other point, which is becoming more obvious to me, is the fact that the Brahmins are extremely concerned about their own status and the extent to which uh, the whole notion of what it meant to be a Brahmin had changed quite dramatically from images that we have in late Vedic literature where they're ritualists and so forth. So I've been working on that and looking at archaeological stuff, looking at the economic background, because originally I was trained as an economist, and I've just got to get up, get onto it, and finish it because it could. I've written about a dozen articles on it; could go forever, and um, so that's essentially what I'm working on now. What about you? Fascinating. Me? Well, um, I'm in pseudo retirement. No, what am I working on now? I'm uh, finishing the translation of the Devi Mahatmya. We've uh, just about finished the um, co-edited volume with Macamus, where eighteen of you, you, you included, contributed to the Sanskrit narrative yep. uh, volume. Yep. 
Um, what else is my desk? There's a couple articles on my desk. One comparing the Devi Mahatmya to the Kerala Badrakali Mahatmya with um, right. Noor Van Russell's of, of Ghent. Um, yep. I actually would love to wrap up all of these deadlines so I can dive into a monograph on the Mahabharata that I was hoping to start last year, but the, the visions and revisions volume took up a great deal of writing bandwidth yes. among other, yeah. other projects as well. And, and uh, in, in my particular case, it's the teaching and the, the counseling that funds everything in the, in the, the writing and, and podcasting, et cetera, is pro bono. And so you've, you've got to pay the bills, um, but I would love, love, I have, um, uh, before I leave this earth, hopefully sooner rather than later, there's a book on the Mahabharata and the works um, um, looking at the Pandavas as uh, the narrative, as an allegory in certain ways to Sankhya philosophy, among other okay. things. Okay. Uh, but but that's there's a Mahabharata book that's been uh, itching yeah. to be brought into being. Um, and then um, not entirely sure academically, I would love to do um, some creative writing at some point. I think I have a novel in me, but we'll see. Mm. We'll see. Mm. Yes, the Mahabharata is, is such a rich text and you can go into it and never come Endlessly, out, but... endlessly gripping. You Like who, who comes to mind, because I was trained at the University of Toronto before the PhD and Archie Don comes to mind. I mean, she spent her entire academic life studying, quote unquote, just the Mahabharata. But I mean, yeah. there's no just, the, I mean, it's, you, you spend three decades on the text and you're still convinced you've scratched the surface. It's, yes. My it's, big guru, Madeleine Biardot, she spent about 40 years studying the Mahabharata. Mm, and she was mm. she was my guru. Brilliant, brilliant woman. Real, yep. real flair for narrative. And yep. I think to study narrative, well, you know, the, 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 the intellectual impulse is different from the creative impulse, absolutely. But to really, really grok narrative, one has to have a flair for story or at least an appreciation for story and then and then engage it with the analytic mind. Um, fascinating. All right, well, we'll um, close for now, but thank you okay. for appearing on the podcast. Eh? Pleasure. Thanks very much. Okay. See you later, Raj. Stay on for a minute, Greg. I'll be, I'll be right with you. For those of you listening, uh, we have been speaking with Dr. Greg Bailey um, on a brand new translation, uh, the only English translation of the Vinayaka Mahatmya. Uh, until next time, keep well, um, stay safe, keep listening, and uh, keep reading the stories of uh, Vinayaka Ganesha. Take care.